Are you struggling to make your first 100K or next? Are you pretending you're successful, but barely getting by? Are you tired of comparing yourself to millionaires and billionaires who make it look so easy? Welcome to First 100K, the number one entrepreneur voice in America. I talk about the important things that no one else is talking about, like how to make your first $100,000, because I believe this is where 90% of entrepreneurs get stuck. And I tackle the mental game of entrepreneurship that we all secretly struggle with but won't admit. My guests are successful entrepreneurs who share their mistakes, their number one fears, their daily habits, and their superpowers that push them over the 100K mark. I'm your host, your coach, your friend, Joseph Warren. I'm also a 10-time failed entrepreneur and the owner of two co-working spaces here in Tampa, Florida. This show was created for you, the entrepreneur who's pushing to break through the elusive 100K milestone. Wherever you are in your business, you're just 100K away. Today, my featured guest is Casey Stanton. You can find him at cmox.co or caseystanton.com. Now, Casey is the founder of CMOX, the fractional CMO company. That stands for Chief Marketing Officer. He's helped businesses scale their revenue through marketing since 2008. He's an expert on the evolving landscape of marketing strategy, digital marketing, sales, and remote teams. He's always looking for a win-win outcome for entrepreneurs and their team members. He teaches his innovative functional marketing framework to marketers looking to ascend into their career from marketing coordinator or marketing director to fractional chief marketing officer. A former Tulane University professor of marketing and a Michigan State alumni, Casey enjoys spending time with his wife, son, and dog exploring beautiful Philadelphia, USA. So Casey Stan, welcome to your first 100K podcast, top 100 podcast on iTunes in entrepreneurship. Go ahead and fill in some of the gaps in that intro, would you? Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to be here. So to fill in some of the gaps, um, my business is in fractional chief marketing officers. And what that means is that most businesses uh, that are over a certain financial level or level of success or have a certain level of complexity need a chief marketing officer. That is the person that is the highest um, uh, rank in, in the marketing department. And the CMO typically works directly with the CEO and reports to them as then the CEO reports to the board of directors. What we're finding today is more than ever, companies need a CMO because of the evolving digital landscape, right? Everything changes in, in a minute, um, but they also don't have the cash flow necessarily to pay for a full-time CMO. Now, a full-time CMO can run 170 to $240,000 a year. That's about what Glassdoor says. And it takes on average 17 years for a marketer to ascend to the role of CMO. Now, what we're finding right now in this COVID era is companies are realizing they need a CMO. They can't afford one and they need, they need the solution. So the solution is, is one of two things. They either hire internally and start um, supporting someone inside the organization and have them kind of become the director of marketing, but that person doesn't have leadership skills because they aren't taught it or they don't seek them. Um, but they don't really understand like a, a bigger purview of what's happening in the digital landscape. The opposite of that hire is to hire a marketing consultant. And marketing consultants are great and they can be really effective, but oftentimes they come in, they identify the problem and then they leave. And with that, they just leave a solution on the table and hope someone could figure out how to execute it. What they really need is a CMO, but this new role of the fractional CMO meets them where their needs are and where their budget is. A fractional CMO supports a business maybe 10 hours a week, and they're leading that business as, the, as if they were the CMO, building the company, building the bench of talent, um, and getting things executed. So doing more than the marketing consultant, um, but also having the flexibility of the marketing consultant. And I think that's what's really exciting for, for marketers. I think that's powerful what you're saying right now. So pretty much you're saying, hey, you can hire in a part-time chief marketing officer for your company so that you don't have to figure out all the marketing landscape right now that's ever-changing. And you can have someone come in super talented on more of a contractual basis uh, to handle all of that, maybe that you're not great at in your own company so that you can really focus on building and, and, and pursuing that vision. Is that correct? Yeah, that is correct. I think though that the, the notion of part-time is a bit of a misnomer though, because these organizations need this contract to last for a long time. It is a contracted role, but it's not, it's not part-time as in you're going to work a little bit and then maybe we'll cycle you out. It's we're committed to you for the long term, but we can only use 10 hours a week of your services at the max. So what's exciting for marketers is when they become fractional CMOs, they can enjoy the long-term commitments that a CMO would have, right? Like full-time employment commitments, that kind of commitment, although it's not a full-time role. Um, 
but the flexibility of the marketing consultant. And the added benefit here is that they're able to charge rates more akin to the marketing consultant on an hourly basis versus the CMO whose hourly rate diminishes over time. Got it. So that makes sense. Okay. So take a minute, share something personal about you that very few people in your business life actually know. All right. So um, I graduated Michigan State University and uh, um, ended up moving into my sister's basement and like really struggling. Um, couldn't find work. Uh, actually spent the summer after college uh, at my parents' house in Northern Michigan, riding lawnmowers and, and uh, you know, making a couple bucks an hour. Um, I was traveling to see a buddy because I was just kind of getting done living in my sister's basement. And I went down to Florida to see a friend of mine and I stayed with him. And on my way back, I stopped in Nashville and I overnighted there. And this was really before Airbnb was big. So I couch surfed. Are you familiar with couch surfing? Oh, very. Great. So couch surfing was great. And I stayed with this wonderful woman in her uh, garage, which was a garage converted into a cottage. <laughs> I've and, never heard of that. Yeah, I hadn't either. I think she just lived in a garage and told me it was nicer, but um she took me out to dinner uh, one night in downtown Nashville, and we went to Dino's in uh, Nashville East or East Nashville. And um, while I was there, I met a man, and the guy was like a sage. He was like a wise man, and um, we just got to know each other. And he said, "Casey, you belong in New Orleans." And I didn't know what he meant, but I knew my birthday was coming up, and it looked like Mardi Gras was the same time. So I booked a trip and drove out to New Orleans and stayed at a, you know hotel that I could find room in and um, actually got there on Ash Wednesday because I didn't know my holidays very well. I didn't realize that Ash Wednesday was the day after Mardi Gras concluded. Um, wow. But I lucked out that year because St. Patrick's Day was like two days later. <laughs> so I got to enjoy that and fell in love with the city and um, loved every bit of it. My wife, um, I met my wife online and uh, she came to New Orleans and we lived there for a few years. And then we sold everything and said, New Orleans isn't our forever place. So we bought an RV and we drove around the country for three years to city date and find the perfect place to live. And after three years and actually getting married in Nashville, um, while we were living in the RV, we were at the at an RV park over by the Grand Old uh, so the Grand Old Opry, um, and uh, had the sewer line freeze, like the whole shebang, like two days before the wedding. It was nuts. Um, but afterwards, I took her on a honeymoon up to Savannah, Charleston, Richmond, Raleigh, and ultimately to Philly. And we found Philly and fell in love. And two years ago, um, next month we moved here. Got it. So where does uh, the CMO business, where does its origins happen in that story? Great question. So when I graduated college, I couldn't really find work. So I got on the back of a lawnmower and um, I knew the only thing that I could do is like invest in myself. I was really frustrated actually at Michigan State, my guidance counselor, um, who I kind of felt like was the guy looking out for me. I felt like he and I had a good relationship. Um, a semester before I was to graduate, he retired. And I got this, you know, green, fresh academic advisor and she didn't know me and she wasn't very good. And I was really frustrated. I felt dropped by my university. I graduated in 2008 into the housing crisis. And like, I was out of opportunity. There was no opportunity that was available. So I got on the back of that lawnmower and I said, if I'm going to figure this out, I have to figure it out. I can't trust these mediating bodies in my life, like my university or, or you know, my parents to like figure it out for me. So I listened to some Tony Robbins tapes and digested a ton of other uh, information and an opportunity arose where there was a guy who had a beautiful house and I was mowing his lawn and I got off the lawnmower one day and said, Hey man, how, how did you do it? How did you, how'd you get this? Like, what's your story? I mean, man, he just had like the most gorgeous home. He like showed me his office at one point and it was like this gorgeous office. He just had a boat, right? It was like the dream of living on the lake in Northern Michigan. And he said, Oh, I invented a product and I have a group of distributors that sell it. So I said, can I sell your product? Right. I was just like, eager to, to do something. And he said, sure, but you have to buy inventory. I was like, cool. Can you just like front me? You know, I'm good for it. <laughs> and he was like, absolutely not. So I don't remember how long I spent two weeks mowing lawns and I bought inventory. And then on my day off, I went door to door and I made more money in sales and profit in one day than I'd made in the two weeks prior. And I was like, man, I am onto something, right? There's something here about this. this there's this leverage of time for money. And previously um, when I was in uh, high school and college, I was a magician. So I was getting paid um, well for a short amount of time, right? I would get $100 an hour, but I'd only work four hours a week. Mm -hmm. But there was some kind of leverage there. There was something interesting. And I saw that with sales. And being you know a typical millennial, I thought that it was too hard to go door to door. So I tried to take it online. And I took the products online to try to sell it and learned about copywriting and um, got really excited, realized the product I was selling was garbage. And <laughs> I had to abandon it. And I left all the 
leftover units in the garage, you know, and they're just, they just disappeared over time. Um, but that's how I got into marketing. And that's how I got into taking a product that you would sell door to door. And how do you multiply that salesmanship, that sales ability? And that got me really excited. So, um, uh, after before you go on, before you go on, did you have success marketing the, that same product online? Cause it sounded like you said it was junk product. So you just abandoned ship on that. I never made a dollar on it online. Okay. okay. So what made you say, you know what, I'm going to go grab another product and do it online. If you didn't have any evidence that it would work. Right. Good question. Well, the evidence was all around me that something was working. Someone else had figured out how to sell something online. And I wasn't married to this product, right? I didn't invent it. It wasn't my child. You know, I could divorce it pretty quickly, but I knew that there was something to be said about long form copy. And that's really where I fell in love was this idea in, in, um, in door-to-door sales. If you go and meet someone door-to-door and you sell a vacuum and you knock on the door and two loud dogs come running, you sell the vacuum with its ability to suck up dog hair, right? Like it's pretty clear. But if you go to the next house and um, there's a woman who answers the door and she asks you to be quiet because her kids are sleeping, and she doesn't have a dog. You sell that same vacuum cleaner as its ability to vacuum quietly while the kid sleeps. So having those two different objections, how do you then write to a wider audience? Well, you have to have all the objections in all the copy. So you have to overcome the objection of pet hair, the overcome the objection of uh, the noise level of um, the HIPAA air filter, all those sorts of objections. And once you have that, you then have a tangible sales um, uh, like uh, offer that you can go shop to traffic. And I just found it to be this, this really fascinating line. Maybe it was my interest in magic and how magic was <laughs> sleight of hand and misdirection, right? But also magic was about the ability to create the conditions to make someone feel a feeling. Hmm. And I found that to be so fascinating. I could manufacture a situation where someone felt a certain way. And copywriting was the ability to do that. And I think it's easy to kind of like skew and try to be manipulative, but if you do it and you really believe in what you're selling and you want someone to have a better life. Um, I, I heard this when I was on a meditation retreat, the guy said, what force would you use to stop a child from touching a hot stove? Right. You would have no problem grabbing a kid and throwing him on the ground. Right. What force would you use to stop a kid from running into the street? You would drop kick a kid if you had to. Right. <laughs> So if you believe so much in the product or service that you're selling, you should use a level of force to protect the people so that they do, in fact, take you up on the offer, right? And I just found that to be so fascinating. Mm. That's powerful. Okay, so you go into long-form copy, you fall in love with it, you have those connections from your younger days of being a magician, and you're like, wow, digital marketing is a form of magic. Um, that you can create these feelings and emotions in total strangers that you haven't met before to elicit some kind of behavior shift or change in them, and, which is fascinating. I agree with you on that. So move us into uh, what you're currently doing. Um, why did you leave or how did you bring um, writing copy into your current business and bring us, take us into that quick story? Yeah. And I think that this is um, kind of on track with that first 100K. So I started taking this ability because I wasn't a product guy. I didn't invent products. So I found other people with products and helped them sell it. And that's how I got my start. I moved to Ann Arbor, Michigan um, before I left to uh, um, New Orleans. And in Ann Arbor, I worked with uh, some folks in real estate. I worked with a doula. I worked with all sorts of different people. And it was just fascinating to get to know all of these different markets. So I found that to be interesting, but I never just like chose a market. I never said, I want to be the guy that does just this one thing. Um, and then as that progressed, I started working with more and more businesses. And I actually tied in with a uh, marketing agency. So I contracted for a marketing agency for about eight years. And that was a great opportunity to um, buttress my skills with people who did all the things I did poorly. They did well. Mm. You know, we had someone in finance that would get the money, right? We'd have a PM who would manage the project. And I quickly saw that my value, I, I had two ways to grow my value. One is to niche down and be known for one thing. And the other one is to rise to the highest ascension of my role, which would be the chief marketing officer. And I was just interested in that. It just felt like the right next step. I didn't necessarily have a, a, a long-term strategy around it. But as I climbed the ranks in that agency to become CMO, opportunities came in from other clients um, that were marketing opportunities. And I didn't take them on as a marketing tech. I didn't take them on as an order taker. I took them on as someone who was creating the strategy and laying out um, who needs to work on what in order for the success to happen. I took that highest level. I kept pushing myself to the highest level of um, ascension of the marketing role, right? Not mm -hmm. for anything besides impact. And the thing that got in my head was if I solve small problems, I get small rewards. Mm -hmm. 
But if I solve big problems, I can get big rewards. And I remember reading a book on McKinsey, the consulting group, and um, uh, they mentioned uh, that people pay for McKinsey, not necessarily because they're the best, although they're kind of the best, but also because they charge the rate at which the problem should cost to be solved. And I just thought that was so fascinating. They're you know, one person's one hour of time in your business could produce a $10 benefit. One person's one hour could produce a $100,000 benefit. And if you try to play the game of getting higher and higher on that ascension, you have more impact. And with more impact, you can get the products and services out to more people. So that can feel really good. You can change more lives. You can also improve your own life. That is powerful. I'm thinking of my own coaching practice right now and pricing it. Many have told me that I'm priced too low for the impact or the results that clients are getting. For example, when one of my clients comes to me because they have broken communication with their wife and they're headed towards a very nasty divorce that's gonna take them for everything that they built up, all their achievements and financial success, their business, and their kids are gonna get emotionally traumatized, et cetera. And they work with me and we get them the result of getting their wife back and avoiding that very costly, nasty divorce and fallen deeply in love again. It's like, what's the price tag for that result? It's not 20 bucks an hour, is it? It's definitely not. And, and sometimes I look at it, I'm like, well, let's look at the numbers. Like if she took you for half of everything because you were acting like a doofus in your life, right? And if she took you for half of everything, what's that number? Because that's what we just saved you. Let alone all the emotional, traumatic, right? right? All that other stuff. And it's like, that's very powerful. And I know I'm not charging nearly that. Is that what you're talking about? It is, it is. And it's it's looking at people like that, like um, a man who has had time to amass a level of success and have a lot on the line. So family, children, right? House, business. Um, working with those people has a very different impact than working with someone who is um, 22, uh, has been married for a year and you know is just starting their career. Not that those people don't need the support, Right, but there is the opportunity to impact maybe downstream more lives. Maybe you could see that way. I mean, also maybe increase your rates um, by working with someone who has more on the line. And I think that's a great point. Yeah, I think so too. So, Startup Nation, I use my own self as an example there because I want you to connect what Casey's sharing with you to your business. Are you charging those rates that equal the results that you're getting for your client, or is there some kind of uh, disconnection there? For the client, when they view your rates and they're like, okay, you're promising me this huge result, which I desperately need and I'm ready for. And you're only charging how much? And then you don't believe the person, right? Like it adds a question mark where there should be none. Right. Totally. And not that the most expensive thing is the best. Correct. But if the most expensive thing is priced on its value, it may be the best. Now, when I think what's important here to note, though, is that the market won't respond to you and tell you that your prices are too low. Right? They're going to take advantage of your low prices. Thank you. That is when, so true. When I uh, did my first magic show, uh, I did it for a friend's sister and my parents drove me. I think I was 15 and uh, I did a show and I had a lot of props, right? I had invested a couple hundred bucks, a lot of birthdays. You know, it was a significant investment. All of my money was going to magic stuff. And I charged 20 bucks or something. And I was satisfied, whatever. I did a show, you know, I didn't need to make a ton of money. I was a kid. My next show um, was for people I didn't know. And I did it, it was outdoor. And um, the, the, the mom said at the end, hey, what do I owe you? And I was like, $30, because I knew to like increase my price. And she laughed at me and she wrote a check out and handed it to me and it was a $150 check. Wow. And she said, this is what it was worth, right? That was the only time that anyone has ever offered to pay me more, right? You got lucky because she did lucky. something that was an outlier. Totally. And I could have totally been the $30 magic show guy for a long time, but then she made me the $150 magic show guy. And then those prices increased. So don't look for a really kind person to do that. Know the value. I know the value. That was a huge value. She spent a lot of money on that birthday party. An extra 150 bucks is not a, is not a bunch of money for, you know, it was um, at the level of the entertainment value that I provided. Yes. And let me share a quick story too, for you startup nation. So and this hits both points that you just made Casey. One of my clients, um, she came to me and, and I gave her a reduced rate because I was still ramping up right, my business and getting my own confidence and chops in what I was doing. So I give her this price point. She agrees to it. No problem. So we're about halfway through the 12-week or 90-day boot camp. And she's getting these 
just blow the door off results in her family, in her business. And she was running an eight figure business and her profits are just going through the roof because she's showing up in her personal life so much better. Right. So she's like, Joseph, I got to be honest with you. She's like, do you know the last coaching I bought? I was business coaching and I spent $100,000 for that coaching package. Right. And I was like, you spent what? No. And you did she's like, she's like, I spent $100,000 for that coaching. Uh, and I have gotten more value in my business and in my personal life from your program. And I'm only halfway through it than I did for that. And I said, great, let's great. raise, let's raise your rate. And, and here's the, uh, the counterpoint. She would not budge and give me a nickel more than my original reduced rate. Even when she signed up for my additional coaching. Because in her head, oh, interesting. she had cemented that price point. So like you said, the, the, the business world will take advantage of you pricing yourself too low. And that, that stung because I'm like, you spent a hundred grand. I'm not even charging close to that. And you won't give me more, even though you got the results. Is, is that this what we're talking about? Both those points? Totally. You'll, um, you'll never in her eyes be the person who can command the numbers that you command with everyone else. All right. So I have to ask this. Is there a way to salvage that in that person's eyes or are they, you permanently uh, just stamped and stigmated, whatever, like you're, you're not worth more than this amount because that's how you, that was their first impression of you. I, I think it's interesting. Um, so I'll share my successes with like my parents mm -hmm. and their stories about me are still the same. And I'm still the same kid that they changed the diapers of. Yes. It doesn't matter how far I've grown because they have a story about who I am and it, it, it's not changing significantly. You know, who I am as a father is maybe different, but like who I am with kind of everything, they kind of know who Casey is um, or they, they have a, maybe a historic view that's locked in that they're not um, open to change. So is it possible to change? I'm sure it is, but I would say more often than not, um, there's a fixed value that people place on you. And right. it's the value that you allowed them to, to kind of see you as. That's a powerful point. And for you, Startup Nation, many of you right now are at price points that are too low for the results that you're providing uh, for your, your company, for your clients, for all these individuals, right? You're, you're creating results. You have all these testimonials, but your price is too low. Rather than uh, try to bump them up to higher prices, any new clients coming in, test out your higher prices with them. See if they're willing to bite. And what you'll find, and I, I did this, this is how I grew my business was I just would just every, every time I got the next higher price point from two clients willing to pay it, it was time to bump it again. Amazing. Right. And I would just do that in pairs. Two people paid this price up. Oh, it's too low. Go for the, the next level. Two people paid that price too low. Go for the next level. And I kept doing it and I'm still way too low even doing that. So Startup Nation, I hope that serves you well. Um, Casey and I are you know, sharing his story right now, but I'm pulling out these golden nuggets that he's bringing out because the way we price ourselves or value ourselves or undervalue ourselves will determine our business success. True or true, Casey? Oh, well, I think absolutely. Um, yeah, like when I think of like just marketing a product, right? Because my experience here is in marketing and sales. Uh, if you're marketing a product and you try to be the Walmart, which is the price competitor, you don't have margins. There's a reason that Walmart's carpet looks fine if you vomit on it. It's gross to say, man, but they chose a carpet that you can have spills and vomit on and it still looks acceptable, okay? It's because they're a low-cost leader and that's what they have to consider. But on the flip side, if you're a premium offering, you have margin. And what does the margin give you? The first thing that we think is the margin gives us more money in our pocket to have a different lifestyle or to you know eat out more often or have nicer champagne for New Year's or whatever it is. But really, it's the way I see it is I can produce better results because I can get a team to support me, right? When I increase my rates, that that delta uh, goes into investing into the client and producing a better relationship and getting more effective. And that might mean investing in your branding so that you can have a just like a through line through everything that you do that the client sees and they say, oh, that's valuable, right? Like I get how that fits in. It could also be a package that you mail them. It could be team members that support. It could be software or tools. So I think that increasing your rates gives you the opportunity to produce better results mm -hmm. to a level. And then at some point, uh, you know, it does just become um, money to either invest in yourself and your family in your future, uh, but also other ventures. I think a lot of the people probably listening, like they have a lot of vision and I gotta say, man, it is, as, as I'm sure you know, really exciting to have the cash flow to invest in ideas that might not be great, or they might be, and you can take the risk on it and not have to worry if you're gonna make rent. 
Startup Nation, what I'm hearing Casey say very well is increase your rates so that you can increase your impact in the lives of people. You could reach more people. Why? Because you can hire a team to do the things you're not great at. You could do the, what you're doing right now, producing those amazing results for your clients right now, your 10 clients or your, your 50 clients. You can now reach and give those same results to 1,000 clients or 10,000 clients. Think of the impact. Think of the ripple effect. Or conversely, with two clients, but those clients have a bigger um, uh, downline, yes. right? So they're doing more impact. So do you want to work with 10 clients that each work with 10 clients? So an impact of 100 or two that work with 10,000 each? You know, and those that work with 10,000 each, um, I, it is always surprising to me, the bigger businesses that we work with, how price is not the objection. It's typically about, about time or ownership or ability to complete or alignment or financial cycle, budget cycle, you know, whatever, but it's never about price. No one box at price when you Got get it. past the level, right? When you get past the level. Got it. All right. I'd like to shift the conversation here. We're speaking with Casey Stanton. Uh, he's the founder over at cmox.co. Go check him out. And Casey, you work specifically with clients doing two to 4 million. Is that about right? No, that's, that's not correct. That no, our not businesses. Correct. No. Yeah. Our businesses that, um, that I personally work with are north of 25 million. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. So those are the ones that I think are ideal uh, in the fractional CMO space. Yes. Um, but I teach marketers how to work with businesses and how to become fractional CMOs. So how does a marketer who has spent uh, his or her uh, time um, inside of an organization being like the SEO person or the PPC person or like the general marketer, how does that person ascend in ranks and ascend in income and become a fractional CMO for one client through like some moonlight work that they do to add in a couple thousand dollars a month in, in income? Or how do they take it on full time and work with three, four, five, six clients and, and bring in a very healthy six figures. Um, that's what I think is exciting. And those companies could be smaller companies. They could be a million dollar year company. Got it. I, I tend to find though that companies that are below a million, unless they have good capital investment, um, your rates can start taking away from their children's ability to eat. <laughs> right. So you have to be yeah. cautious of the emotional considerations there. Right. Yes. So I'm going to ask you uh, in the the few minutes that we have left together to give us your top three marketing tips or strategies for the business owner who is just breaking the six figure mark. Maybe they're at 80,000, they're about to hit hundred K or they're at 250 K, but they're in that lower echelon of companies, not the companies that you work with, but what are those, they cannot afford your rates. They can't afford to hire that um, interim uh, CMO or fractional CMO. What can they do specifically? you got a lot of marketing experience. you got a lot of digital marketing experience. What are your top three tips or strategies that they can use this week, starting this week to really even shift their bottom line by 5%? 10%, just a small bump. What do you got for them? Oh, that, that's a really great question. Um, so a couple things come to mind. One is um, just like a rigorous attention to sales. You know, we want, uh, I'm in marketing, marketers want to do marketing, but if you can't sell, you can't market because marketing is salesmanship multiplied. Marketing is sales, sales is me knocking door to door to sell vacuum cleaners. Marketing is me going online and selling those same vacuum cleaners to a thousand people at once. So to do marketing, you have to do sales, get good at sales, understand sales, understand sales psychology, look at your sales process, uh, grease the shoot to get someone who's interested to be able to talk to them. You know, again, as marketers, we want um, mailbox money. We want to like open up our inbox and see all of the transactions that have occurred, right? But if you're selling services or you're selling higher ticket products or something, hopefully with, with really good margin, um, get on phone calls with people. Man, just if you've got a list of people who haven't bought, but you know are qualified, just run a campaign right now and say, hey, let's get on the phone and talk and close them. Sure, it's not scalable. Okay, I get that. But like, you're going to drive the revenue short term. It's, it's this rigorous commitment to sales that so many entrepreneurs are lacking because they're looking for scalability before they kind of have deserved it. And I will never turn down a sales conversation. Right? I'll, just, I'll never turn down the opportunity to talk to someone who's waving money saying that they have a problem. I might not be the right guy to solve it, but I could just pass them over to a friend or to another business or whatever, and they could solve the problem. So just like one is a rigorous um, a commitment to sales and, and, and greasing the shoot and doing what it takes. Like uh, there's this notion of a sales prevention department, right? Like how do I get in the way of people from buying? There's so much of that. Um, so, so remove the sales prevention department. Um, the second thing, hmm, 
that you could do right now to drive sales. Mm -hmm. um, I really like the idea of a bump offer. And this is kind of a notion that became popular in like the click funnels, funnel right. hacker movement. But it's the idea that on all of your proposals, add a bump. And a bump is a checkbox for somebody to get some additional service and make it kind of grandiose. If you check this box, I'll charge you an extra $5,000 a month and I will commit to training your team once a week for three hours on this and doing that and doing this thing. Like what is something that's really valuable? And when you present your proposal to the client, walk them through it and say, hey, I don't know if this is right for you or not. I just wanna let you know it's a service I offer. What, one in five say yes? Like that's pretty cool. So, toss so in a question, question on that. Should the bump uh, be a higher price point than the original product? Good question. I, I think there's like a lot of psychology there, like the notion of a decoy offer and like how do you position pricing against yourself so that your tier that you want them to buy seems like the best value, right? So um, the typical way for that is like good, better, best pricing. You know, if you buy more of it, it's a better pricing and maybe someone will buy the best. But So if we took out all that psychology, what would you do specifically if you were trying to break 100K in the next three or six months? I'd solve the problem that mm -hmm. they had in continuity. Absolutely, 100% a continuity offer. So I wouldn't do a $5,000 one-time offer. I'd do a $5,000 a month offer or a $1,000 a month offer and get them locked in and say, you're locked in for three months, love it or leave it. If you're out after three months, that's fine. If you're in, you're in for another 12. And just lock them in because you're already making a sale. Why not put a rider on it? You know, just like a little bit of, what do they call that? Porking a bill um, in, in politics. Uh, and like, why not just put it in there? You're not tricking them. You're simply saying, oh, by the way, I can offer this thing. And maybe that's my third like my third piece of advice here is sell with continuity. Quit selling one-off widgets. Quit selling one-off service engagements. Don't do that. Because do you have to wake up every day and sell again, right? So you're saying sell a product where you're going to get monthly subscription or monthly membership dues for that product. And you can, so if you were selling, a lot of coaches have those $5,000 coaching packages. So you're saying don't sell the $5,000 coaching, coaching package, rather sell it in monthly installments over 12 months. So well, then maybe what I would say if it's a $5,000, is that for a year typically set the pricing? Uh, no, typically that'll be like 90 days. Okay, cool. So I would, um, I would probably do a, a, a 90 day then 12 month commitment on that. And then on top of that, I would add a different thing, which would be, um, an extra fee and I'll text you five days a week and be responsive via text and, you know, some other stuff. Like add another level of care and support that's beyond your typical, which is going to be costly for you and your time. Um, but if it gets them the result, I know a guy in the fitness space, like most people who do like diet coaching, they're going to charge you what, 300 bucks a month, right? Something like that on the high end for diet coaching, maybe 200, maybe a hundred. This guy wants three grand per month, three, per month, right? 12 month commitment. And um, his commitment to you though, is he'll text you and follow up with you. And you'll have them in your pocket. And if you're going out to a big dinner with, you know, a business thing, and you know, you got to have some cocktails or whatever, you text him and say, Hey man, what do I do? And he, and you take a photo of the stuff and he tells you what to eat and he helps you. It's that level of support. He's charging three grand for it. Right. But the, th the thing I think is neat is that he'll probably only do that level of service for you for two, three months. And then you'll just stop requesting it because you'll have learned, but you'll be at the $3,000 level price point. Right. So then you mm -hmm. as the entrepreneur would get the uh, reduced labor and still have your, your income stay the same, right? Yeah, that's really genius. All right, thank you, Casey. And uh, now it's welcome to my favorite part of the show. Welcome to the hustle round. Sorry, I was on a, a separate thought there, so and my, my mouth was talking, so that was fun. Uh, welcome to the hustle round, favorite part of the show. Uh, I'm going to ask you 10 quick fire questions. You'll have about three seconds to answer each. Don't overthink it, it's just for fun. Are you ready, sir? I'm ready. All right, what's your favorite thing about being an entrepreneur? Um, that I am in complete control of my life and outcomes. And I, the only person I can blame is myself. Um, and I just find that to be just so motivating. If I want it, I think of that Rudyard Kipling quote, which is, if you want something and don't get it, you either uh, didn't want it bad enough or you weren't willing to pay the price. And it's not because someone wouldn't give it to you, right? Nope, right. it's all on me. Yeah, there's a lot of ownership there, personal responsibility. Absolutely. What's your least favorite thing about being on your own, doing it and having all that responsibility on yourself? And uh, taxes, paperwork, contracts. Um, yeah, all that kind of legal stuff that just, it just feels like it sucks more out of me than it gives me in value. Yeah, that's why you get a interim CFO, man. Totally. Someone to do all that, right? All right, what, what are you most afraid of? 
I mean, I think like hot air balloons and steamrollers are, are up there. Um, in business? Uh, Just in life. Yeah, I, I, I think um, I wrote some coffee a while ago and, and it was just like, I said something like, no one ever laid on their deathbed and said that they worked more hours, mm-hmm. right? They, they laid on their deathbed saying that they wish they had more family and friends around them. And uh, I question sometimes how much time I work. And I worry that I'm not spending enough time with my kid um, or my wife or my family. Um, yeah, that's, that's a constant struggle in my mind. If you were being totally transparent right now, would you consider yourself kind of a workaholic? How many hours do you put in a week? So I sit at the desk here um, probably 35-ish hours a week. Um, but my head is in the game all the time. And I don't check my email on the weekends. And I really try to, to take time away from work. Um, but that doesn't mean that I won't think of something and record a, a voice note and send it to my assistant or something like that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely always, it's just who I am. This is part of you know who I am. Got it. Thanks for being honest about that. So my next question is this. I think we're all struggling with something at any given moment of our life. It's just part of the human condition. What are you struggling with right now, either professionally or personally? I mean, personally, it's, it's pretty easy. Um, my wife and I moved to Philadelphia away from family. Uh, it's just us. We've got a six month old. It's COVID. You know, we don't want to catch COVID. Um, and there's just a lot. Uh, we moved from an RV into a house. So we had nothing to furnish the place with. And it's just this act of building out the house and our life and figuring out a kid um, and having just boxes of garbage every week and uh, the struggle of getting, you know, good nutritious food and, and having like uh, healthy eating and working out. It's just, it's kind of difficult right now with the sleep patterns. Mm. It's yeah, definitely, there's a lot going on there. Yeah. As a new father, I can relate. So I get that. What secret fear do you have about people? Um, uh, that's a good one. Uh, I would say that my two big things are one is that I'm not smart enough and two that I'm in trouble. Those are definitely the things that come up for me. Um, I'm not smart enough. Like I made a bad decision and mm. that reflects poorly on me or yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's bad decisions. It's, it's, it's big decisions because I make big decisions with these clients. Um, and then for our own company, if I do it wrong, it's on me. And, and I definitely feel worried. Got it. What about the, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble is like, um, I, I definitely have like a muscle memory of checking my email and like worried something's wrong. Uh, I'm uh, really good at fighting fires. Um, but I don't want to, right. It mm-hmm. like keeps my cortisol levels like through the roof. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's like this feeling that I'm missing something. And my solution to that is building a team that can support me and make sure that I do everything I say I'm going to do and the team delivers, but it still is like a, it's a reptilian kind of, uh, reaction. Yeah, I get that. What do you wish you had learned sooner in business? Hmm. I wish I would have learned sooner. Um, oh, that's a tough one. See a lot of my friends who like own houses, who like have settled, had kids earlier, that kind of thing. Um, and I, I feel a level of like wishing that I had had that earlier on, um, but also feeling that I'm very content in our decisions. Um, so maybe a little bit of that, like learned earlier on, like how to envision my future uh, in a more comprehensive way, because I definitely thought of it in individual pieces like business success or health yes. success, but not as like, what is it? who do I want to be at 70 years old with, you know, kids and grandkids and like, what does that life look like? And what am I known for? And um, what's my unique ability and, and, and how am I providing value to the world? What's my relationship? That kind of stuff. Yeah, I get that. Uh, what's a new habit you want to create in your life? Um, the one I'm uh, working on pretty ardently right now is uh, working out while my son has his morning nap, <laughs> which has been really helpful. I really appreciate his longer naps now. Um, that's a good habit for me. And um I think there's there's a larger habit of delegation in business that I need to uh, just continue to improve on. Uh, I'm good at taking on tasks and then having them, you know, get loaded up and then you know working on them you know, later in the evening or whatever. Uh, and I just need to hire and delegate more. Got it. Is that also a bad habit you want to break or, or something different? Yeah, it's interesting because I have so much pride in the work. You know, I enjoy doing it the first time. Um, if it's a puzzle, if it's new and if it's different, but if it's routine, I don't want to do it. So. Um, it's more about like applying my curiosity to things that push me forward instead of getting stuck in um, routine tasks that aren't as valuable. Hmm. Pick three words to describe who you are now. Uh, I would say curious is a really big one for me. Um, Self-directed. I'm 
I'm really eager to do what I want uh, and inclusive. I try to make sure everyone is on board and, and kind of in the same direction with me. That's awesome. Pick three words to describe who you are your first year in your business. Oh man, scattered, broke, um, out of breath. <laughs> That's a good and it was and last question. Last question, Casey. If you could come back to life after you died, look your wife, your kids, your family in the eye and give them only one piece of advice about everything, what would you say to them? Um, like master first principles in everything you do. First principles being like the core. Um, some people can make a really great uh, uh, like uh, quesadilla, but they don't understand what flavors work well together in cooking, right? So if they lose the tortilla, they don't know what to do, right? Similarly in marketing, a lot of people don't know first principles. They know how to create a funnel, but they don't get the core principles, the first principles of it. They don't get it in parenting. You know, what are the principles? The principles of like putting your kid down for a nap and having a routine around it. Those principles, if understood, and committed to memory and committed to action, I think produce so much ease in life. There's first principles mm -hmm. in fitness. Um, don't get hung up on the diet du jour. Uh, be committed to learning the first principles that there are four major lifts. There's a bench press, there's a deadlift, there's a squat, and there's an overhead press. And those are the four. And you can add additional things, but like learn these core things in your life. Um, and I think one of those core things too is uh, the equation of producing value and having that be exchanged for some other value. And um, if that's income, you know, I think that's helpful in this realm to exist successfully. You need to have income. That's awesome. I like that you brought that up being, I'm asked for one last gold, gold nugget on that. What do you consider to be the first principles in marketing? Um, so there's a notion here of like fast to change and slow to change. And I will, uh, time after time, happily hire and pay market rate for SEO experts, right? SEO experts who are like, we're recording this here in January, 2011, um, 2011, 2021. Uh, and uh, Google did a big algorithm update, right? I, I don't know everything that happened, but I know that like the lighthouse reports are valuable and all this other stuff. I don't want to follow that, right? Let's let someone else go follow that. If, if you're listening and you're like, no, man, I love that stuff. I love to nerd out on this little thing. It's like, great, but know your role, know where you fit in, okay? If you're going to be really good at that thing, go tie up with someone who's really good at these other things and then you know be supported. But if you learn the first principles of marketing, you're learning things like, um, uh, who's the ideal customer? What problems do they have? How do you solve their problem? Um, how do you uh, create an offer which identifies their problem and shows them a solution? There's a book called um, Breakthrough Advertising by Eugene Schwartz, and he talks through the stages of awareness. Are you, is the person problem aware? Do they know they have a problem? Do they know that there's a solution? Do they know your solution exists? Do they know the reason to buy your solution but just haven't bought it? And everyone assumes that their prospect is in this solution-aware category, but so many times they're not even in problem-aware. They don't know they have a problem. So you have to identify the problem first for them. And uh, it's just like, it's so core, but so many times I see ads and I'm like, what is the premise of this whole ad, this whole marketing campaign? The premise is something that I just don't believe to be true, right? So it doesn't matter how hard you worked on producing that and how good your ad team is or whatever. If the foundational element here is that you're talking to my pain, but it's not my pain, like it'll never hit. So it's, it's just getting down to who you're talking to, what their problem is and how you solve the problem. And then it's where they live, you know, which is like online or offline and you know, how you get that message in front of them and then how you get a call to action in front of them. And if you master that stuff, you can say, oh, we're going after 13 year olds, right? 13 year old girls who care about their hair. And we sell hair gummies. Like, okay, cool. Where do you find 13-year-old girls? Oh, TikTok and Snapchat, right? That makes sense. But if instead you kind of reverse that and said, hey, I want to market on TikTok and Snapchat and like, who do I serve? Like you're like backing into a problem, I think the wrong way. Identify your audience in the problem first and then go figure out where they are and position your offer. And I think offer creation is um, alchemy and most people don't appreciate the complexity of uh, producing a good offer. You know, they just say, I'm selling this thing, you should buy it. And it's like, that's false. Go look at Beachbody. You know, the fitness group Beachbody? Yes. They have a product for each type of person. They've got P90X, which is like, if you're in it and you're like going to push play and you're just going to give it 90 minutes every single day and you're going to do that ab ripper X, right? If you're like willing to do that, that's P90X. But what if you only have 25 minutes to work out, right? That's Sean T's Focus T25. The headline is no time to work out. I just found some for you. Uh, a full hour's workout in just 25 minutes solves a problem. P90X solves a problem. There's also another one, um, UV2. And it's like a Richard Simmons knockoff. 
right? It's for people who are heavier and it's really fun. And it's like pastel colors and spandex and they're dancing around. It's just a different audience. But so often fitness people are like, I'll help you get fit. Look at this guy. Look at, he can bench press 350 pounds. And then you've got this woman who like loves, you know, dancing and having fun. Like she doesn't connect with that. It's the wrong offer. So creating offers, I think, is 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 probably the like the penultimate action before obviously the sale, um, and it doesn't get enough uh, attention. I think that was such a valuable gold nugget, startup nation, don't you? Like looking at, I mean, I get hit in my Facebook or whatever. Uh, just I, all these, you see all these fitness people, and they're doing the before and after shots. And it'll be like a shot of like the bodybuilder, then a shot of the overweight mom, and then a shot of like the the dad bod or whatever. And it's like three different types of problems, three different sets of struggles, three different uh, ideal clients, really. And it should be three different messages, but it's one just canned message for everybody, totally. right? That's what you're talking about, yes? And, and, and I'm, I'm special, man. Come on, Joseph. I'm a, I'm a special person, right? I have, I have a unique experience. I, I'll tell you this. If someone came to me and said, I help. Um, you know, high growth business owning entrepreneurs who have young children, uh, you know, deepen their marriage and increase their profits through marriage coaching in a secular way, right? If someone came to me and said that, I'd be like, okay, like, let's talk, man, right? Like, that's my guy. But if someone is just like, yeah, I'm a relationship coach. It's like, you don't, you don't get me, man. Like, I just think that you're going to get the person who does a nine to five. Nothing wrong with that person. They're just different than me. Right? There's, there's, there's something special about me and I want you to talk to that and make me feel like you get me. And it's okay if you have 10 other sales pages for everybody else, right? Just, like, just send me the link that goes to my sales page. That's all right? I'm asking, man. Yeah. So would you recommend that for listeners right now that are running their businesses that instead of they have one core offer um, that they're kind of pushing out, say fitness offer, but they're doing it to multiple ideal clients, but it's just one offer. Are you suggesting that they come up with like three mini brand offers for each of those three different clients? Yeah. Yeah. yeah yes, absolutely. I think that, um, I, I mean, I'm just going to say some stuff that that's, that's, I don't know, I, I think a reality, but people don't like it, which is, um, I mean, first of all, there's a desire that we all have. We all have desires. You can't manufacture desire. Right? There's this notion that we can create desire. And I think that's incorrect. You can identify the desires that the market has and you can attach your product or service to those desires, right? I can't make you desire my product. I can see that, Joseph, you desire freedom in your life and I can show you how my product gives you freedom, okay? So men desire freedom, just like generally, right? Um, this isn't for everybody and, and women desire freedom too. But like generally men desire freedom and a major desire for women is to look and feel younger. These things are perennial. They will last forever. So if you tell a guy he can look and feel younger, he's not as interested, mostly, right? Yeah. Uh, as he would be if you said, I'm going to teach you how to be free of fights with your wife. I'm going to teach you how your kids will come and have respect for you. It, like that, that is very interesting. And uh, so the question is, should the audience kind of split that audience up? Um, I think the answer is yes, but you have to be cautious of buying power in audiences. Just there's some rules here. Uh, in a typical um, uh, like heterosexual marriage, the wife makes a majority of the financial decisions, especially around the house. So if you sell a household thing or you support in the house, you got to get her buy-in, right? You know the the guys, you know the, the men have different um, kind of behaviors. So know who you're talking to. Make sure the message is, is right for them. But oh, man, the number one um, trait or the number one kind of data point to know if someone will invest in personal development which is like coaching. The number one is that they've done it before. That's it. That's it. So like, don't go invent a market here, man. Right. Don't go invent a market and say, oh, I think I found the next billion dollar market. Cause you might've, but you have to educate that market that they have a problem and that there's a solution and they should hire you for your solution. And here's why and yada, yada. Go find people who have already purchased, know that they've already purchased. They have some kind of track record. Where do they hang out? Man, if I'm going to sell personal development stuff, if I'm going to sell coaching, I'm getting into yoga studios, I'm getting into gyms, I'm doing free classes, you know, like a like a half hour um, get together where I go over a worksheet or a tool or something like that. I'm going to do something specific to that audience because they're pre-qualified. And I'm also probably going to go to the gyms or the yoga studios that are the most expensive for a couple of reasons. One, because the audience is more expensive, right? Like they, they can afford to be there. They can afford to go. Um, and second, uh, just because it's a, probably a better experience for you as the, like the presenter facilitator, right? Like, do you want to go to a yoga chalet that has like beautiful, like spring water from Sedona, Arizona, or do you want right. to go to like the YMCA? 
It's true. I remember when I first started my coaching practice, uh, the first guy I gave the lowest price to, right. Cause it was just, you know, I was testing it out, beta testing. And to this day, he was the biggest headache client ever. Um, because he paid so little, he put so little skin in the game. And I love working with the clients that spend the most because they're the easiest to work with. They're the most coachable and they get the best results. It's just a great experience for them and for me. And it's the but same the for caveat, you starting. The caveat is that you have to lead, right? You can't treat this, the person at the low price and the high price the same. There's a level of leadership and accountability and ownership that you have to have and embody, which is such an edge, I think, for people. They say, oh, I can do this thing well, so I should just do it and sell it. Doing it well, like doing your trick well, whatever it is, you're a fitness coach and you help people get in shape or lift weights or you know relationships or whatever. You, you have to be able to not just answer their questions, but lead them appropriately. And investing in your ability to lead is, is, is important. Look at organizations that have been successful for the longest time. Like, I mean, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts, those are organizations that have leadership components that have withstood from like millennia, right? Churches have leadership components. Like there's a structure to that. Understand how these people lead and apply that to your business. That plus your stupid human trick, right? Your, your skill, your, your talent, you mix those two things together and you can then be worth the value. It's not simply saying, I want to work with people who have money and I want to charge higher prices for the same thing. No, no, no. You have to go to the next level, right? If I'm working with my fitness coach and he's got a workout for the house and something happens and I have a question about sleep, he better answer that question about sleep, right? He better answer that question about traveling. He better answer that question about what should I eat at 7-Eleven because I'm on a road trip and I'm only going into one place because of COVID, right? He's got to answer those things for me. So if you can do that kind of stuff, then you can earn the opportunity to charge higher prices. So thank you for adding that in, because that's an important caveat that you need to constantly be increasing your craft, right? Developing your craft, practicing your craft, getting better, really showing up at, at a higher level of excellence if you're going to command those higher level rates. So we're speaking with Casey Stan. Uh, Casey, where can Startup Nation uh, get in touch with you if they so choose? Sure. I'm on the socials, Facebook uh, and Instagram. Uh, my name is Casey Slaughter Stanton. There's a couple of women who share my name, so I slide the middle name in there too. Casey Slaughter Stanton, or you can find me on my website, cmox.co. And if you're interested in marketing stuff, I put together a webinar just recently on uh, an agile approach to marketing, which I think is the next kind of um, wave of marketing uh, inside of organizations. So it's, a, it's an approach to um, build a marketing team or have marketing processes that allow you to actually get things done on time instead of having just a backlog that gets longer and longer and just feeling like you're drowning. So that's a free webinar uh, <clears throat> at cmox.co. Awesome. Startup Nation, thank you for hanging out with Casey and I. And we went over a little here. We had a longer conversation and I'm glad we did because he really saved some really good marketing nuggets and wisdom towards the end there, didn't he? So if you're still with us now, you got that. For those that jumped off, they missed it. So you're just the better person. That's what it, that's what's so. So Casey, uh, thank you for being on your first 100K. Wish you God's love, peace, and joy in your life, sir. Startup Nation, you cannot show up authentically in your business without building faith in your business. If you want to have that conversation on the faith side of things, go check out my other podcast called Broken Catholic. On that show, I interview all different guests about why the world isn't working right now. Plus, I tackle unspeakable topics that you may secretly struggle with, but won't admit. We got to get your faith right to get your business right. Go to brokencatholic.com. I'm Joseph Warren, and you were made for greatness. So stop being a wuss and start being a winner. Have a blessed day, and I'll see you right back here next week.